Hello, and welcome to the ASHI podcast. My name is Gonzalo Berman, and I serve as the Editor-in-Chief of Antimicrobial Stewardship and Healthcare Epidemiology. With the ASHI podcast, we hope to share content that is relevant, novel, thought-provoking, and consistent with the diversity of perspectives that we seek with ASHI. A special thanks goes out to the editorial team and, of course, to Shea for their ongoing support. We hope you will enjoy this podcast. Greetings and welcome to the ASHI podcast, where I'm here with our deputy editor of ASHI, Dr. Priya Nori, where we're going to explore themes related to the journal and themes related really to our train of thoughts sometimes. We have a very special guest today, super special guest. He's really quite an international man of mystery. He's uh, from the United Kingdom, speaks English, like an Englishman, I should say, but carries an Irish passport, is a rugby fanatic, an audiophile, travels the world, a well-known infection preventionist, and very well-published, and also a master podcaster. And today's discussion is on podcasting. Welcome, Mr. Martin Kiernan. Oh, thank you, Gonzalo. I, I was wondering who you were about to introduce listening to your introduction. None other than you, sir. So, Dr. Nori, do you have any comments at this time? No, except that I'm extremely excited to be here and talk to Martin, and we have a ton to learn from you just getting started on our podcast journey, so welcome. Yes, we, we're probably going to learn a lot more from you than you will learn from us. And I guess that's the nature of all the podcasts, right? Absolutely. So today's discussion really stems from your experience, your history as a podcaster, and of course, your rather high-quality paper that you published in our journal, ASHI, which is fully open access available to anyone on podcasting, really the power of podcasting and the impact it has on education for infection prevention, public health and stewardship. And uh, it's been um, very well received and we're really excited to discuss this with you. So Dr. Nori, do you wanna take, take it away with the first question? Yeah, sure, it'd be my pleasure. So Martin, your career in infection prevention in the UK is long and varied and your path is unlike a lot of your colleagues here in the US. Can you speak to us about the differences in infection prevention careers between the U.S. and the U.K.? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I started in infection prevention back in 1990 when I was called an infection control nurse. I actually ended up in infection control mostly because I didn't want to be a nurse manager. And at that time, often tissue viability was a joint role with infection control. So that's what drew me into it because I was quite interested in, in tissue viability. Of course, then I fell in love with infection prevention and control. I did my first course back in 1991. We had no degrees or anything like that in infection prevention around that time. I ended up doing a master's in public health and I, I stayed in the topic and I, I just then focused on infection control from then on. I became president of the Infection Prevention Society, which is according to your APIC. And there are big differences, I think, between infection prevention careers in the US and the UK because we don't have hospital epidemiologists. So at the beginning, when I started, you would work with a medical microbiologist. We actually don't train medical microbiologists anymore. We now train infectious disease physicians. And that's been one of the biggest changes because many infectious disease physicians aren't that interested in infection prevention. So the, the focus has gone away from them towards treatment and diagnosis and being a, a bit more of a general physician. Whereas when I started, it, the medical microbiologists very rarely went on the wards. They would occasionally go and see a patient, but they wouldn't have their own caseload or anything like that. 
So that's left a bit of a gap, which is being now filled by people like myself who are going on to getting PhDs. I don't have one, but many of my colleagues do have one. And, and often they would be the lead person for infection prevention in an organization. We also have a role for clinical scientists who are, who are microbiologists who are trained in laboratories, but then do clinical training. And in fact, three of our biggest organizations in the UK are led by non-nurse or doctors, clinical scientists. So Mark Garvey in Birmingham, John Otto is an expert epidemiologist, I'm sure you've heard of, at Geyser St. Thomas's, which is an enormous organization in London. And at Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital, Dr. Elaine Cloutman-Green is the infection control doctor, but she's not a medical doctor. And she's the lead for infection prevention. So we have a broadening of the teams. I have to say, not to the same extent as David Weber's team, where he's got about a million people in his team of behavioural scientists, and I look enviously to that. But it, you know, things are very different here in the UK, and there are big opportunities for nurses and clinical scientists to take on lead roles in infection prevention. That's a great summary. You know, when I was with you in Liverpool, when was that right before the pandemic, maybe 2019, I did have the honour and pleasure to hear lectures by Drs. Otter and Garvey and really quite high quality science and ideas and perspectives that they were that they were presenting. So I was left most uh, impressed by the quality of the science, the Infection Prevention Society, and really all the initiatives that were spinning off on that. Really great. Let's turn to podcasting. That's kind of the topic of the hour. The topic is really based on your excellent commentary. And Ashi, once again, for the readers, please take a look at that on our website. Tell us how about how your podcast, Infection Prevention Matters, took shape and how it launched and how it's been so successful how did it start i suppose loneliness (laughs) i've been fortunate to be able to go to meetings around the world and i have very good friends all around the world yourself included and i have two very good friends in australia professors brett mitchell and professor phil russo and brett and phil have been talking about it and then i got talking to brett about it and we thought actually this is a good way of keeping communication going during covid when no one can travel anywhere and I mean, at that time in the UK, we could, you weren't even allowed to leave your house. And so we thought, okay, well, let's let's just think about how we could do this. And we had a look at what podcasts are out. And there weren't many infection prevention focused podcasts around there. And so we thought, okay, well, let's just see if we can contact a few authors, have a few discussions amongst ourselves. Uh, one of our first ones was Stephanie Dancer about her COVID myths paper which has you know, certainly got people thinking. And it's really went on from there, really. We started to ring up or, or email authors to say, would you like to discuss a paper with you? You've been kind enough to do it a couple of times. And also what I've also managed to do, what we've also managed to do is we tend to grab people at a conference and say, actually, I really enjoyed what you were just talking about. Would you come and talk to us for 10 to 15 minutes? So it's all extremely informal. I mean, I've never sent anybody any questions beforehand. It's very much off the hip because I find that conversational podcasts are the ones you really want to listen to, and you just chat away, really. And a different idea will float into your mind, and it'll float out of your mind before you've asked the question. Often, in my case, but it's it's very informal, and that's what that's what I like about it, really. So it started off by myself and my two friends chatting to each other, bringing in other authors as as a bit of fun, but also to try and get some science in there as well, and. And our aim was to see see if we could get a a concurrent session type of audience for each podcast, which we've been able to do. Priya, it is, Priya, it is absolutely true. I've seen him in action in London last September. This man can podcast like nobody's business <laughs> and, and off the cuff. Really cool. <laughs> it's not difficult, though. You have a normal conversation because that's the thing about it. You go to an infection prevention conference. 
And in the evening, everyone's talking infection prevention. Everybody's not talking about what are you doing for a holiday? Where's your family? You know, we're all talking about infection prevention. So you just stick a microphone in front of people because that's what we're interested in. That's why we go to these meetings. It's our passion and, and we all feel it. So it, I've had many conversations going into all the wee small hours, which fortunately haven't been recorded because the odd beer might have been involved, but might have been quite entertaining in, in retrospect. But it's that sort of thing, really, the immediacy of it I like. That's a production idea there. We could do the podcast at the lobby bar. <laughs> yeah, we have done one of those. <laughs> <laughs> what was the name of that episode, I wonder? Oh, it was called Are We Experts? And Brett, Phil, and I were discussing whether or not we are truly experts or are we more of a, a general practitioner? Because, you know, if you're talking about air science, okay, I was an expert because I've done a course in infection control, but I'm about as an expert as the poodle in the next room. Okay. Uh, there are people, they're scientists who are supervising PhDs. They're, they're the experts in that area. So consider myself someone who knows people who are experts so I can go and talk to them about what I need to do about it. And, you know, deference to experts is a, is a thing I've learned a lot. I mean, I... You know, I thought I knew it all. I was the expert in my organization when I did the infection control course back in 1991. And I'm going to finish my career knowing I know way less about my subject than I thought I knew back in 1991. So, Martin, then how do you convince people who may be shy to come on your podcast or to sit down and, you know, chat with you about infection prevention? How do you convince them to come on, especially when you were just getting started and how do you convince them that this is a, a good platform to help disseminate their work? Okay, well, I'm, uh, I think I start, we started by asking friends. So it's difficult for them to say no then. <laughs> but once we have a few under our belt and people have listened to a couple, you know, we, we present it as an opportunity to talk about their study. And one thing I really do like about podcasting is, you know, when somebody writes a paper, it's very cold and it's very structured because that's what it has to do to go through the peer review process. But actually, when you hear somebody talk about something that's maybe been three or four years of their work, you actually get the passion for their work that comes through in conversation that you don't get out of the written word. And, you know, we can get people to expand on certain areas and ask them, well, had you thought about doing this or had you thought about doing that, that they can't actually put in the paper. So that's what I like doing about it. So I, I've actually had, I think, one refusal in all the time we've been doing it. If somebody who said, I, you know, I just can't do it. So it's been, we've been very fortunate, really. Who could possibly refuse you? One person. One person. <laughs> you don't have to name names here. That's okay. No, no. It's safe a safe place. place. Yeah, she podcasts. It's a safe zone. So, Martin, our follow-up question is that in your paper, your commentary that you recently contributed to ASHI, which is entitled The Power of Podcasts, Exploring the Endless Possibilities of Audio Education and Information in Medicine, Healthcare, Epidemiology, and Antimicrobial Stewardship, which was published online on June 5th, 2023. You explore both the positive aspects for dissemination and promotion of one's work, but also some of the limitations. Can we spend some time talking about that so that we can acknowledge that, you know, while this is um, really helpful for our field, that there may be potential downsides? Sure. I mean, you know, I'll do the positives very quickly. I think it's immediate and it's short and you can do it while you're doing something else. So people, I say, don't listen whilst driving or operating heavy machinery in case you fall asleep. But generally, people can be mowing the lawn or out for a jog or something like that. And people's, I think, attention span is a lot shorter these days and nobody wants to sit through a 90-minute lecture or anything like that. So it's something that's short and immediate. 
and it it can promote a thought. I think that's the, that's the thing. It can get people thinking about things in maybe a different way. Or I hadn't thought about that, and maybe I need to go and find out about something. But the downsides are this is completely non-peer reviewed. So you're listening to somebody's opinion, and they could, if they wanted to, steer a conversation in a certain way, and only ask questions in a way that get an answer that they want. And so it, you have to take that in line. With, you know, I mean, the papers often we discuss have been through a peer review process, but. The discussion hasn't, you know, it's, it's, as I just said to you, it's stream of consciousness stuff. So, you know, you have to bear in mind it's somebody's opinion. You may well have a different opinion and that's absolutely fine. And, you know, that's what we're trying to generate really, a, a different opinion than someone. So to me, the, the downside is, it, yes, it is disseminating science and opinion, but it, there is no filter on it. It's not peer reviewed. I want to go back to a comment you made earlier. Martin, about uh, your power trio, let's call them that, your power trio of podcasters. It's you, Philip Russo, and Britt Mitchell. Now, they're from Australia, correct? Yeah. Right, and you're you're based in the United Kingdom. By having that geographic diversity of two, at least same language, but two different hemispheres, how has that enriched the nature of your podcast, either, either the quality or depth of your materials, being more international in scope? We do actually try and get people from around the world to come and speak to us on the podcast as well, so that it's not seen as either an Australian or a UK-focused podcast. But, of course, we are limited by the fact that we only speak English and not very good English at that, particularly the Australians. So that that's a limitation for us. Having said that, we've got a lot of people who've you know in different countries who's had a, a, a listen in as well. But what we do try and do is try and draw in people from say Singapore or you know South America or you know different parts of the world to actually bring their experiences as well, so that we're not seen to be too focused in geographical areas. Having said that, you know Brett edits um, infection, disease, and health, so he'll know all the papers coming from that sort of area as well. So I, I think geographically it's useful to have it so that you're not seen as a I suppose we are still seen as an Australian or UK podcast, but we try and make it as international as possible, really. Right. It's a challenge, though. It seems like you have multiple eyes on the literature in different geographic areas, and that's very helpful. Yeah. Helpful and enriches the content and certainly gives new ideas and perspectives. So uh, really interesting. Hmm. Martin, what's the most exciting thing you've learned in this process from one of your guests? And if you don't mind mentioning who that guest was. Oh, <laughs> I really enjoyed chatting to Alex Sunderman, actually, briefly at Shea. You know, the, the real-time whole genome sequencing and spot, uh, stopping outbreaks on the second case. It was just, you know, when I started, I was taking days to get a result, no computers, no email, which was bliss, T-cards with names on for, for my storage system, no way of retrieving any information. If You know, you had to have a your your filing system really to determine whether you may have had a cluster of cases it was your memory and now we're it's a completely different ball game I, I, I wish i was starting again to be absolutely honest because the potential is absolutely huge so that that just that 10 15 minutes with him i'm thinking wow this is absolutely the future and the same thing's going on in australia um, with pat harris and uh, and his group in brisbane as well it's it's so exciting the future the potential really to to get in quickly with an intervention that could stop harm to a lot of people and save the organization a, a lot of money and a lot of time and reduce antimicrobial use because we're preventing infections very early on the potential is massive i found that very very exciting very and nice. Of course, Alex is uh, from our companion journal, Itchy, and so he's a close colleague, and we appreciate <laughs> the uh, mention. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that mention. Now, similar, but maybe a twist, 
Have you ever had a misadventure podcast? And you don't have to name names, but tell us if you if you've ever had things just go off the rails, so to speak, on the podcast. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have we have somebody very famous over here in the UK called Professor Catherine Noakes, who's an air scientist, and she's absolutely brilliant. But she's well known in her Zoom calls for having a. a and a Zoom lectures for having a Siamese cat that tends to wander around. And well, well it, it started vomiting during her podcast with me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we had the vomiting cat in the background, which I had to edit out, but I've kept, I've kept it for future reference. Perhaps you should have kept that audio in. Give it yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Priya's corpsing. <laughs> Priya, we need to get an office cat or something. In our respective yeah. Here. yeah. Vomiting pets. Vomiting Brilliant. Pets podcast. Yeah. Yeah, vomiting pets podcast. Very cool. <laughs> what a great story! It's, it, undoubtedly, there's an audience for it. Definitely an for everything. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. I had to go on mute because I was laughing wildly in the background. Okay, just to get us back on track. Back to your paper. How do you think, Martin, that how can what lessons can we take from your paper in terms of really trying to convince people that podcasting or or joining a podcast, being on an episode is a really nice companion to their work for those that might be shy? Yeah, I mean, you're talking to a, a small number of people. But your message goes out to a lot of other people. And it's and people are often you know, quite nervous when they go to speak at a conference at the first time and they're they're talking to five six seven hundred people on a podcast you're talking to one person so it's actually a, a relaxing and quite comfortable place to be especially if you can build up a, a rapport with somebody beforehand anyway and i you know that's that's the main thing really for me it's an opportunity to get your message out to people and then other people will start talking to you about hey i heard you on the podcast and that may, maybe will bring confidence to people who maybe think well maybe i have got something that people want to listen to after all, you know, because it's it's difficult to measure. You get the number of citations and things like that, but it's not quite like having a discussion about your work. And I, I find that a conference presentation is often quite, this is the, these are the facts if people are nervous. But actually in discussion, they relax into it and you get the, the feeling behind it and the effort that went into it. And, you know, and they can discuss a little bit more freely some of the problems or the things they did or didn't think about because, you know, you, you're restricted to a word count as well. So it gives people a chance to expand on their work as well. That's fantastic. So you draw them out, in other words. So even yeah. if they may be a little reticent, I think you're very familiar, comfortable, and warm nature helps draw people out. We appreciate that. That's the theory. <laughs> so in your paper, you have a beautiful table that essentially lists all the relevant podcasts in the English language that we know of that are related to infectious disease, infection prevention, stewardship, public health. Uh, have you had a chance to sample all of those? And apart from Not the- all of them. Oh, no? Okay. No, no, not all of them. I mean, there are a number of very good ones. Uh, yeah, I, I really enjoy yours. I really enjoy the style of yours. Some are a little bit more formal in style. But some of them are quite chatty. I just I just say to people, just pick a couple and just have a listen. Um, you only might listen to one episode, but you'll soon find out what sort of style works for you, really. Right. I noticed that for your and your podcast, there's a very comfortable style to it. I've only been on it a couple of times, but you make your guests feel most welcome. And you're you're very clever in your questioning and guide the discussion such that it doesn't feel like an academic discussion, although it is academic <laughs> in nature. And that's really that cool. Would be, that would be that would be difficult for me because I don't consider myself to be academic at all. So, <laughs> all 
That's the easiest thing. Martin, first of all, thank you for curating that list of podcasts inclusive of, of yours. I sent that directly to my trainees who just started in the States. They all start on July 1st. And so they're just kind of getting their feet wet and um, I made sure that they they had that resource. So thank you. And also, you know, I've not seen a lot of articles on podcasting and the value that it adds to our scientific endeavors. So, so definitely thank you for that. What advice do you have for folks like us who are just getting started in this particular game, which is podcasting? I would say try and be yourselves. Work out what you want to achieve early on. And if you're trying to promote the journal, then that's fine. And you've done a good job of that so far, I have to say. <laughs> uh, I think, you know, work out what you want to achieve, what sort of style you want to have, go for. Have a listen to quite a few and then just go for it. I mean, it's it's easy to be honest. I use a guy called Mike Russell on YouTube who taught me all I know about editing because we've, we've done it all in ourselves. You know, So I do all the editing. It doesn't take very long at all. The music came off a loop on my iPad. You know, it's, it, it's actually very, very easy to do. You, can, you don't have to use fancy software to do it either. There's a great program called Audacity, which you can download for nothing. That's open source. There's tutorials all over YouTube on how to do it. You could even record it on your phone. You get fantastic quality on that one anyway. And some organizations, like there's an organization here in the UK in Gloucester Hospitals where they have an internal podcast in the organization run by the infection control team where they'll discuss a topic of the week or they'll get, if they're having a change in a product, they'll get the, the representative in to talk about actually how to use it. And they've, they're hosting that on the hospital intranet and the staff there will listen to their own internal podcast. So they're not launching it to the wider world, but it's, it's a really good way of getting people to listen to something where they would hate to sit in a lecture or they're not going to read a flyer or something like that. I did wonder about having a, a QR code up on the wall, this week's podcast, and you just hit the QR code. And it'll take you straight to it, and you can have a little listen to it. You know, I, I mean, there's, there's lots of potential of things you could uh, use to go with a podcast. But I would say, think about how you want to structure your podcast if it wants to be indeed structured at all. Ours isn't at all, and then just have a go and make some mistakes. You, the wonderful thing about podcasting is editing. You can just edit anything out. You can edit out vomiting cats, laughing people. You can just take it all out and make it sound very a lot smarter than the original recording did. Can we edit in a vomiting cat sound effect? Yeah, probably. Cool. <laughs> I have been I have been known to edit in the odd sound effect during Christmas specials and that sort of thing. So you, you can have a lot of fun with it, to be honest. Thinking, and you're learning a new skill as well. Right. I'm thinking of a potential title for this episode called Vomiting Cats and Other Good yeah. Cats. <laughs> <laughs> all right, great. So you mentioned something, Martin, I think is really important about the importance of sampling other podcasts to learn from them, obviously, but also to further refine and develop your stuff. And you've heard that similar analogy is if you want to be a writer or write, you got to read like 10 times more than you actually write to really get a base or a foundation of your train of thought and your subject matter, et cetera, et cetera. So you've inspired us to really to listen to more podcasts and we will make time to do so. Well, I'd like to follow up with a question uh, regarding your, your podcast and how many listeners you have and how many episodes. Do you have a good numerical fix on the number of downloads, listens, episodes, and perhaps tell us what you hope to explore post-COVID on your show? Yeah, I mean, we tend to pick topics that are of interest or of note, and there are some areas we haven't really been near yet. 
We haven't covered Clostridium difficile that much. We, we're woefully short on fungal infections. Um, so there's a number of areas we want to, to look at. We'd also be interested in getting some feedback. Brett started a website recently, infectioncontrolmatters.com, where people can actually send us a note because we'd like to know what people would like to listen to. Because at the moment, we're just coming up with our, our own ideas, really, as to uh, where we can go with it. I've lost my train of thought on your, your question now. Well, I think you covered most of it, but I do want to mention I did check out your Infection Control Matters website. It's quite nice. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, the nice thing about that is you can actually pick a particular topic like in the environment, and then all the podcasts on that topic are listed there. So you can then go and work your way through those if you were interested in that particular area. Or we, Brett and I have got a particular interest in healthcare associated pneumonia. So we tend to do quite a few on those, non-ventilator associated. And we've you know, we've talked to people like Diane Baker in, the, in, in uh, over your neck of the woods on that as well. Phil has a particular interest in surveillance. So he will do, tend to do podcasts in that particular area as well. But of course, there are our own choices. So we would like to hear from people what they would like us to cover really. Awesome. Hey, Martin. So now on to more serious topics, sadly, moving on from vomiting cats. Um, So the topic of burnout is, I think, universal. It's everywhere, every practice setting, every country. What are your thoughts on that in terms of how we in the IP industry can better handle burnout? What are your personal strategies? How do you think about this question? Really good question. It's been very, very tough over the last couple of years. I mean, my experience of IP teams, seeing what's happened to them here in the UK is for a start, they were extremely well valued because I think the staff felt they were keeping them safe. And then it sort of switched around a little bit towards the end of COVID where they were back to being seen as the police again. I think peer support is so important, having a really good cohesive team so that even if the organisation aren't valuing you, you're valuing each other. And that's by telling each other you're doing a great job on that. And being very supportive to each other is very important. I think starting every meeting, listing all the achievements up to date is always a good way to keep morale up. It's very easy to start a meeting thinking, look at all these tasks we've got to do, forgetting about all the achievements you've made and the successes so far. So I think that really helps. I think saying thank you actually a lot helps. I think as long as you mean it, as long as you show you mean it. When people are leaving, if if your team members are leaving at the end of the day, look, thanks very much. I know you've had a really bad day. You know, making time for each other to talk about, a, a, have a proper debrief as well is very important. But peer support, even between different organisations, is a, is a really good thing as well. And that's something that I'm sure that APIC chapters do in the US. Certainly here in the UK, the Infection Prevention Society has branches where people will gather together, and they will just offload to each other but then you realize everybody's in the same boat and that's what i've found i've been fortunate to travel the world everybody's suffering exactly the same thing so burnout is absolutely a thing it's 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 now trying to try and successes to make you recognize the fact that you are doing a great job infection preventionists do a fantastic job for their organization they enhance patient safety they enhance the organization's reputation they save money for the organization they save antibiotic use and I don't think we're very good at recognising just how important we are, how critical we are for the success of any healthcare provider organisation. You've touched so many important and really relevant themes. I really liked what you said about the small wins and celebrating accomplishments, team dynamics, and peer support. That's really great. So if we could go back, Martin, to your podcast, Infection Control Matters, and ask you something about your guests. 
you have a dream guest you would like to have on your podcast? Is anyone that you're shooting for that you're trying to woo to your program? I mean, apart from Priya and me, of course. Do <laughs> <laughs> you know that's a, such a good question? Oh, well, we've we've had dream guests in in mind, but we've managed to get most of them, to be honest. Oh, either either in, even in short bits, just talking about you know, how, do you think COVID airborne paradigms will change going forward? I mean, people like Andreas Voss are always great to listen to, but he's uh, he's working in university now. Uh, it's that's a really good question. I d- I don't think we've got anybody who we haven't managed to get that we would want to get at the moment, but. We have a very open mind, I think. I agree. Andreas Voss is always very engaging. Uh, yes. Yeah. The Flying Dutchman. Yeah. Known. Yes. Martin, is there anyone outside of infection prevention, but in the larger, let's say, public health or policy field that you would want to have on your podcast? It's always good to get the perspectives of managers. So Brett managed to entice the head of nursing for the Australian government, Alison McMillan, on, and she gave a very nice session about leadership. So it's always interesting to get a, a perspectives of other people as well, because otherwise I'm, I suppose I'm guilty of it as well. We can be a bit introverted. You know, we talk to each other about what we know about and actually getting other people's impression of us would be a very good thing to do. So policymakers would be uh, probably quite a good good addition to the podcast, really. But we, I suppose we tend to focus on clinical issues. So opening out. I mean, we did have a, a chap called Martin Shovel. He's here in the UK. Who's, uh, he, he uses he talks about language quite a lot and whether we use warm and cold words quite a lot. And that was really quite an interesting podcast because I, I hate the word compliance, for example, hand hygiene compliance, because compl- the word compliance infers pacificity. You know, it, it yeah. infers you're doing what you're told. You know, you will comply with this. You are. And I haven't met too many physicians and surgeons who really would put themselves into a I'm going to be compliant and submissive mode. So I think I'd love to find a new word for that. We didn't come up with a new word, <laughs> unfortunately. But yeah, that was interesting, though, to, to talk about language and how you phrase things. And John, I did one with John Otter about that one as well, about language, mind your language. Perhaps we can come, can come up with a synonym for compliance that's more appropriate and more active, so to speak. I wondered about commitment, really. You know, it's 50% of people are doing it, then there's a 50% commitment in that area. And would people feel that as a a bit more warmly? But evidently, that's a cold word. Martin said that's a cold word as well. But it's not as cold as compliance, I don't think. So instead of saying hand hygiene compliance, we're going to say hand hygiene commitment. Yeah. What's the commitment level on this ward? 90% of people are doing it. 26% are doing it. So therefore, there's not much commitment. I mean, that's the first time I've ever heard that that issue framed in that matter. I don't know, Priya, is that new for you too? Compliance versus commitment? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think compliance has become a dirty word in medicine, mm. in, in the corporate world. I think it um, has become heavily tied to the folks with clipboards and, yeah. you know, spanking. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's really uh, time for rebranding. Yeah, I mean, com- to me, is compliance is you have to do it. Commitment is I want to do it. Correct. And I want people to want to do it. And if they want to do it, they'll do it. The term compliance, particularly the way we use it, seems to sound a bit corporate at times too. Yeah. Which I think takes away from its uh, intended meaning. Yeah. My Couldn't agree more. Great. So we're going to change gears again. And I kind of alluded to this in the introduction. Now, I know you well enough that I, I, I understand you're a man of, gentlemen of varied interests. See if I get them right. You love rugby. 
correct? Yeah. Rugby fanatic, football fanatic to her soccer in the United States. Music, yep. bit of an audiophile. You have a particular penchant for like blues and rock and also some jazz music, correct? Yeah. World traveler. Fortunate to Fortunate. be there. Yeah. Podcaster, infection prevention specialist. What did I miss, sir? Tell us about your interests and how that's impacted you and really shaped your life and your career and how it's kept you positive. Hmm. Good one. Okay. So before I started nursing, I sold cars. Oh, I forgot that. And I sold cars because I needed to pay to go rallying because that was, that was a hobby of mine. And rallying tells you to th- teaches you to think on your feet because when you just rolled off the side of a Welsh mountain a few times and you found a track, you you got to okay, how do I? It's, it's very much problem solving and you know map reading and that sort of stuff. The car selling actually was interesting because that taught me a, a, a sales techniques because I've always felt we were trying to sell infection prevention to people. So you only talk to the person who can say yes. You know you can use techniques like if I could, would you? When you're trying to convince someone to do something and to find out the real reason why they don't want to do it. So that was that was fairly entertaining, but once I became a nurse, then there was no time or money to go rallying. So that that ended. You mentioned the music. I love music. I go. I'd, I'm getting to more festivals now because I have a camper van, so that's good. And to keep me humble in life, I'm a terrible golfer. So new to me. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you saw me, you'd think it was new to me as well, even though I've been playing twenty years. <laughs> I think you like the surfing, and like, were you like windsurfing in Australia? You mentioned no, no, no. I tried surfing once. Okay, okay. when well, my kids were learning, and I put on the wetsuit, and they were all waist height, and I went onto the beach with all these kids. And firstly, I looked like the guy in Close Encounters of the Third Kind when all the aliens came to take him in, but I just couldn't do it. And I thought, if I lie on the beach in this black wetsuit, the size of me, people are going to think, oh, my God, there's a whale that's been beached. We're going to come out and tip buckets of water over me to try and keep me moist until the tide comes in to take me out. So, no, surfing is something I'd love to have done it, but I cannot do it. Before Priya goes to our final question, I just do want to to follow up on all these varied interests and hobbies you have. How have they kept you positive and really kept you engaged? We we haven't known each other that long, but you do seem like a gentleman who's high-energy, very positive and brings a lot of enthusiasm to everything you do. Is that a reflection from your outside of work life also? Yeah, yeah. My wife would tell you I've got far too many interests <laughs> and I'm about to fly around them all. I get it from my mother, actually. She was 96 and at the age of 96 was still sitting there on their iPad watching the golf, watching the cricket on the television, WhatsApping and, and playing word games and that sort of stuff. I, I, you never get bored. I never get bored. And that's that's and there's always something else I'd like to do, like I'd love to learn to paint. So, you know, there's, I think by doing all these things, you're constantly enriching your experience of life, but also you're keeping your mind going and your willingness to learn. That's why I like starting the podcast with Brett and Phil, because I then had to learn how to edit. And I learned how to do a bit of music and, you know, and the sound quality got a bit better. And it's it's all it's all about learning to me. And And the more I learn, as Kennedy once said, the less I know. So, <laughs> Fantastic. Take it away, Dr. Norris. Okay, Martin. So one that we often ask our guests on the podcast and in written form is what books are you currently reading? And this is because we feel that um, these are folks we want to learn from and hear from. And we feel that our readers would benefit from knowing what they are into, what they're reading. So can you share uh, with us what books are currently on your nightstand? That's number one. And if I can follow with, what is your next 
big trip or adventure that you have planned? What's on my nightstand? I'd like to say it's something really classical and esoteric, but that would be a lie. So I'm currently working my way through a series of books by a uh, an author, English author called Mick Heron, who's written a series of books based on failed spies from MI5 who've, who've been sidelined from MI5 into a group called Slough House. And actually, Apple TV have just had the first two books as their series. Uh, I would have to say the language on the TV series is considerably muted compared with the books. But I found them extremely entertaining. So I'm, I'm working my way through those books at the moment. So Mick Heron's Slough House books, that's what I've been doing. And my next big trip, uh, I've actually only got one in my diary at the moment, uh, which is just going on holiday in a couple of weeks. I'm taking the camper van to France. And that will be interesting because since the British public decided to leave Europe, it's now become a lot more complicated. So we've got to get, we've got to get the dog into France which means taking it to the vet and spending a fortune on vaccinations and special certificates and getting it worn before we come. So actually, the complications of getting a poodle in and out of France, it's much easier to get a human in, a human in and out. So, so I'm, I'm quite looking forward to that because I've not been abroad in the camper van yet. So it'll be, it'll be a challenge. You can tell the French that it's a French poodle just going home. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think that will work. <laughs> Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. We've learned a lot from you. We have Martin Kiernan here from the United Kingdom. We discussed podcasting, vomiting cats, never getting bored, and MI5 failed spies. All in the last 35 minutes. It's been great, great fun. This could be the most fun I've had in a long time. What are your thoughts, Dr. Nord? We need to get out more. (laughs) I agree, Gonzalo. This has been wildly fun. Thank you so much, Martin. It's been a pleasure to meet you a few years back, and I look forward to uh, seeing you in person the next time. Yeah, remember, thank you very much. Remember, everyone, that this is based on, or much of the discussion is based on a paper published in ASHI titled The Power of Podcasts, Exploring the Endless Possibilities of Audio ed- Education and Information in Medicine, Healthcare, Epidemiology, and Antimicrobial Stewardship, free and open access to anyone. Please check it out. Thank you again, Martin. Thank you again, Priya. It's been an absolute pleasure, and we look forward to having you again on the Ashley Podcast. Thanks very much.